John Huss grew up during the Western Schism, which began when he was only eight years old and didn't end until two years after his death. To understand Huss, uh, we have to understand the context that he lived in. There was a tradition that when the Pope died, a new Pope would be elected from among the peoples from where he died. For this reason, the French popes, specifically the Avignon, had carefully died in France to continue the growing of power and influence of the Avignon papacy, which had been in power since 1309. So in 1370, the year of Huss's birth, Gregory XI was elected to the papacy. In just eight years, he died while in Rome. He wished fervently to return to France to preserve the Avignon seat, but he died too quickly. This left the Roman citizens crying out for a Roman, or at the least, an Italian pope. The Avignon cardinals wouldn't comply, so the Italians elected their Archbishop of Bari as Urban VI. Um, so <laughs> the way that this kind of happened, so uh, Urban VI was antagonistic to the cardinals that had been gaining power in France. They had been kind of building up and, and gaining power there. Um, the Avignonese cardinals returned home and elected one from their own number, Robert of Geneva, as Clement VII. So we have some of these, these interesting power struggles happening here um, that play out later down when you think about Calvin and Geneva later down the road. A little bit of that kind of comes through and makes a little bit more historical sense. Um, and it's also interesting that this whole growing of power and refusing to leave so that more peoples would gain like the, the papacy, one of their own number, uh, started off in France, but now that's what Rome has been doing, you know. <laughs> um, it was this from this turmoil of leadership uh, in the church that I believe that it, this is what shaped Huss's concept of the doctrine of church and the nature of what is the church. Uh, this would end up being one of the areas of reform that Huss was actually known for. Huss didn't start out as a preacher, which those of us who have heard of him usually think of him as. At 20, Huss enrolled in the University of Prague. A year later, now some of these Czech names I'm going to just mispronounce, but uh, <laughs> Milik. Uh, founded the Bethlehem Chapel of Prague, which uh, preached its public sermons in Czech rather than Latin. This was a really big no-no as far as Rome was concerned. They were all about their tradition of preaching the, the Latin mass. Um, but there were already some of these stirrings that Wycliffe had had brought about of preaching in the common tongue. And so this is just kind of showing what what the landscape was like when, when Huss was coming up. Uh, two years later, after graduating and receiving his master's degree, Huss began teaching at the University of Prague. So he's actually uh, started off as a professor, not as a, a, a preacher. By the age of 31, he was the dean of philosophy. I just sort of imagine uh, philosophers as guys that sit in rooms and think about the nature of things all the time. And so given this kind of context of now there are two popes warring with each other sort of thing, all this kind of uh, craziness going on with church leadership, a dean, a proper dean of philosophy would be sitting in his dark room smoking his cigarettes or cigars or pipe and thinking, why are there two popes? <laughs> what is a pope? <laughs> um, <laughs> 
His time at the university is another important step along the path that made Huss a martyr. The university was struggling against mainly German masters and foreign influence that were supporters of nominalism in the church. Um, the Czech masters opposed nominalism and were influenced by and supporters of John Wycliffe's writings. So one of the, the main things at this time that John Wycliffe was known for was preaching on personal piety and responsibility. And there were a lot of people in the, um, the, the institution of the church, especially higher up people, that wanted the allegiance of the masses to the church, but they didn't really care so much about them actually obeying God's law or being holy. Um, so uh, the Czechs wanted to reform the church, pointing out things like the clerical state owning more than half of the land in Bohemia. The church would often tax the people as much or sometimes more than even the king would. Huss was on the side of his Czech countrymen and in 1402 was placed in charge of the Bethlehem Chapel. While at Bethlehem, Huss was the advisor to another name that's really hard. It's Z-B-Y-N-E-K, so Zibinek, who would become the Archbishop of Prague in 1403. The same year, one thinks a certain preacher had something to do with it, a German master wrote up a list of 45 articles from Wycliffe's teachings and had them put to a vote to condemn them as heresy. The Germans held three votes and the Czechs only one, so anything that sounded like Federal Vision was considered heresy. Sorry, <laughs> Wycliffe heresy. Hmm, sounds like Wycliffe heresy to me. The whole time this national movement was gaining momentum and calling for reform, and this would be a theme actually for later reformers. Anytime the scriptures were preached with conviction in the native tongue, the people, not the church leadership, would be the driving factor for reform. Four years after his appointment, the nominalists won over Zibinek, um, who had become the archbishop by this point. And they, so he flopped and charged two of Huss's friends and fellow reformers with heresy. They were shipped off for, you know, uh, re-educating. Re <laughs> <laughs> um, they caved and left Huss out mostly alone as the leader of the Bohemian Reformation. By this time, we could say that Huss is, well, he was more settled in his teachings. He advocated and preached on things such as congregational singing. This is something that we just take for granted now in America, that we can all sing together during the, the service. This was not done in the medieval times. Um, he uh, was advocating for the Eucharist for, of both bread and wine to the whole church. And this is one of the reasons why we we say he's one of our namesakes because he would uh, not only give bread and wine to the laity, which was heavily fought against by, by uh, both the French and the Romans, but uh, he would give it to children as well. He had a doctrine of the church, all those who were baptized and professed the true faith, and they all were welcome to the table at, at Huss's church. Um, he preached against the abuses of taxes, which I think that's just a hilarious one. This one gets overlooked like crazy. Libertarians are all, you know, taxation is theft, and they are centuries <laughs> late because that was basically Huss's, Huss's thing. Um, he preached the supremacy and authority of the scriptures um, over and sometimes against that of the church. He preached in the native tongue. Again, a big no-no. Uh, he preached the doctrine of predestination, which was one of those, um, those things that would have 
have shown everybody that you were a Wycliffe at the time, if you preached on doc, uh, predestination, if you had any kind of love for the doctrine of predestination, you were a Wycliffe. And now, after this vote, a heretic as far as the, the, the schoolmen were concerned. Um, he preached personal piety following after Wycliffe. He fought against the Inquisition and, and much more. There was this, he at this point was in his 30s and he fought so many battles on so many fronts that you almost wonder if he slept. In November of 1414, Huss was called to and arrived at the trial of Constance, um, which was called to put an end to the schism in all heresies. So uh, we had been living with two popes and the trial of Constance said, well, this can't continue on. It's causing way too much turmoil. People don't know which pope to believe when this one says anathema to this and the other one condones it and says anathema to the other. What do we do? Um, so the, the trial of Constance was called, side note, they, they just elected a third pope and didn't really solve the problem, but okay. Uh, <laughs> after multiple trials and a basic, it was about a year and a half, he, he was put into prison under sort of like a house arrest and then actually moved into a jail. But um, a year and a half, three trials later, he was condemned as a Wycliffe and an arch heretic. Um, interestingly enough, Johannes Zacharias, Bishop of Effort, um, he was born in 1384, the same year that Wycliffe died. He was Huss, Huss's chief opponent during the trials. So Huss would come and give a defense for, for his teachings and show that they were scriptural and therefore authoritative. And some of the things that were charged against him just weren't accurate, so he would set the record straight. And this, this uh, Bishop of Effort, the Zacharias, was um, dead set on seeing Huss burn. Um, when Huss, uh, he's credited to giving this prophecy, he says, you can burn this goose, but in 100 years, you will have a swan which you can neither roast nor boil. And one can imagine Zacharias sitting there saying, over my dead body, right? And then 102 years later, we have Martin Luther on his knees in effort being ordained over Zacharias's dead body <laughs> to be an Augustinian priest, another one of our namesakes. <laughs> I didn't know that he was ordained in effort. That's amazing. Yep. <laughs> Huss's last words were to once again affirm that nothing that he taught was against the scriptures, to affirm the um, supremacy and authority of scriptures, and then to also cast himself on the mercy of our Lord. So. To John Huss, the Bohemian reformer, one of our namesakes, born 1370, burned on July 6, 1415, an arch to Rome, a successor of the morning star John Wycliffe, who by his blood followed our Lord and gained the world. Hear, hear.